Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are broken and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner, and I am a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And in this week's episode, it's just me, Lee, and Julia are sitting it out, but I think that is just absolutely fabulous, not because I dislike Lee and Julia, I very much like them, but I have the pleasure of sitting down and discussing our political institutions, political dysfunction, and the absolute solution to all of that that you are going to hear today for the first time, I'm pleased to say, with a, a dear friend and someone who is knows more about this issue and is more thoughtful about this issue than, than anyone else I know, and that's Daniel Stidd. Uh, Daniel Stidd is the executive director of the Lyceum Labs. Um, it's a charitable venture. I'm going to let him tell us more about it, but what it's focused on. And he also writes at The Art of Association, which is one of my favorite blogs. It's the www.theartofassociation.org. It'll be in the show notes. And Daniel knows the democracy reform movement inside and out better than anybody else I know. He is thoughtful. Again, he is creative. He is sincere. His intellect, I think, is second to none. And American politics wouldn't be so dysfunctional, I'm confident to say, if we had more people like Daniel in it. So, Daniel... With that intro, welcome, and please just solve all our problems for us. Uh, but thanks for being here. Well, well, thank you, James. I, I kind of wish we could stop the podcast now because after that great intro, it's going to be all downhill from here. But uh, no, as a, as a as a longtime listener, but first time uh, uh, participant on politics in question, it's really fun to be here. And we'll miss we'll miss Lee and Julia, but we'll say hello to them next time I see them. And yeah, happy to go wherever would be helpful. So where would you like to to dig in here? Well, as our listeners know, this is a bit of an odd podcast in that we have no answers. I mean, I think if, if we have all the answers, we're not asking the right questions because thinking is all about asking questions that don't lead to answers, but lead to more questions. And our goal in this, as you know, and I, I've discussed it with you many times, is to get a better understanding of the problems that confront us, right? And then how to go about thinking about solving those problems. It's not to say this is the silver bullet solution. I mean, I think that will arise, but maybe that's just beyond my job description uh, right now. But to kick off, why don't you tell me more about and our listeners more about Lyceum Labs and, and the art of association and what you're doing there? Sure. So let me, um, let me start with Lyceum Labs, which is a nonprofit project uh, that's focused on reimagining and uh, really seeking to revitalize political leadership in the United States. And we ground our work on three basic premises. The first is that political leadership is really much more important to the healthy functioning of democracy uh, than we are recognized, or even if we recognize it, that we are apt to admit. And I think there's something about people in the democracy reform space uh, that for understandable reasons is always tends to focus on democracy from the bottom up, from the perspective of voters and citizens, and how can they select, elect, or then throw out uh, or potentially reelect uh, their leaders. But the leaders are almost like an instrument of the citizens um, in this formulation. And there's this kind of bottom-up orientation to it. And, and that bottom-up the assertion of citizens of of their views and preferences in politics is certainly a core part of democracy. At Lyceum Labs, we we base our work on the proposition that 
uh, it's actually a two-way interplay. And there's a top-down supply side dimension, if you will, that is supplied by leaders. And, you know, if you go back to Aristotle and the ancients, as they talked about what made for a healthy or good politics, a lot of it had to do with the qualities of the leader or the leaders. Uh, Aristotle wrote about the great souled leader and what were his attributes. And I think in our democratization of our thinking about politics, we've lost sight of one of the two handles we need to keep a, a close grip on. So that's one of our premises. And we take our name from one of the first major speeches that Abraham Lincoln gave to the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield in the 1830s, where he was a state legislator, in which he warned about the dangers of excessive political passions and mob violence and the crucial role that leaders play in channeling those passions, that uh, energy coming from people in a democracy in constructive directions. So that's that's kind of our, where we take our inspiration from. I think a second premise of ours at Lyceum Labs is that the kind of leaders we've had in the past are not likely to be the kind we'll need in the future. And partly that's, you know, I think we will need, uh, broadly speaking, a descriptively more representative group of people. Um, but also the kind of things that leaders do, I think, is evolving. So even as we emphasize the top-down interplay, we also think that in the future, leaders who are in a position to play more of a facilitative role uh, and to have a, a, going back to this two-way interplay idea, a, a pattern of engagement with their constituents um, to help clarify the issues at play and, and what the constituents and the representatives themselves should do with them. We think that's going to be an important part of the uh, equation. And finally, um, we're really focused on leadership at the at the local and state levels of government. That's because if you look across the country, there's roughly half a million elected positions, uh, half a million politicians or so in the country uh, that are in office, and about 499,000 of them are at the state and local level. And so uh, insofar as we're going to replenish our, our stock of political leaders, that's the place to start. Um, most members of Congress and people serving elsewhere in Washington, got their start at the local and state level. Um, the other group I think we need to, um, other couple of other groups we need to inspire into politics. One would be, and, and there's some really good social science on this. Uh, we know people who are especially apt to look at politics and say, that's the last thing I want to engage in as a candidate or someone who'd raise their hand and run for office. Uh, as a rule, millennial and Gen Z Members of those generations are much less apt to come forward. Their uh, adult lives and political coming of age have seen uh, a lot of problems, if not pathologies in politics. So they tend to see it as a den of gridlock and polarization and iniquity, uh, if you will. But also, uh, in addition to uh, rising generations of people who are really good leaders and leading in business and nonprofits and other dimensions of life, but not in politics. Uh, people who are kind of a practical problem-solving bent, who are solutions-oriented, who want to apply themselves to solving problems, uh, tend to look at the partisanship and what they perceive to be the gridlock uh, of government as another indicator of that's the last thing they want to do. So as a result, you've got this, uh, what our friend Lee would call, it's a variant, I guess, of his doom loop 
where the people who are drawn to politics now tend to come for the conflict and the ideology, and there's nothing wrong, and I know we probably can dig into this, uh, there's nothing wrong with being an ideologue or having strong views or engaging in conflict. That's in part what politics is for. But I think in a in a large, diverse society like ours, we need a, a you know kind of a, a mixture of people in government, including people who are focusing on how do we get to the solution, how do we negotiate and compromise when we aren't going to agree in the end, how do we still make some decisions and decide what to do? And you could look at Lyceum Labs and say broadly, what we're trying to do is find a way to identify and lift up those people. And there's more than you might think now, especially at the state and local level, who are leading along these lines I've been discussing. And then also find ways through telling your stories to, in effect, signal to other leaders now on the sidelines, come on in, the water's fine. It's not, you can make a difference. You can have a filling life. And there is a there was rewards to this kind of public-spirited service. So anyway, that's the that's the core work we're doing at Lyceum Labs. Happy to kind of stick on this theme, and then maybe we could come back around and talk about the art of association later, because that that's kind of the the more of the sociological side of my work, if you will. Absolutely, and you know me, it's it's all related, right? I think that's my my theme. But I love this the focus, your focus, and you've had it for a while. It's come up in our conversations on politics as an activity. And it's an activity that is, it's an honorable activity. It's a good activity. We can think of it even more basic as it's politics is the place where we negotiate the non-negotiable, period, full stop. If we agree, we don't need politics. And there's only two ways, the last time I checked, to make collective decisions. And that is politics or bargaining and negotiation and persuasion and eventually compromise or violence, right? I think those are the two ways that humans throughout history have, have made collective decisions. And we want politics. We like politics. That's how we govern ourselves here. Um, and experience, I think, touching on what you, many of the themes that you just mentioned, experience is obviously key. And if we think about why our revolution was able to succeed in ways that, say, the French Revolution wasn't or the October Revolution and uh, in, the, in Russia and the Soviet Union didn't succeed, is that we had experience. We had experience doing politics, going back to 1619 with the creation of the first representative assembly in the British North American colonies. You know, in an ironic way, it's also the year uh, and the place, incidentally, in Virginia, where slavery is introduced in the colonies for the first time. And that's a really interesting contradiction uh, when we stop to think about it. But it, from 1619, throughout the rest of the colonies and the town meetings in New England and the other assemblies, Americans generally... They got experience doing politics and engaging in politics. This is what John Adams refers to as the real revolution in the hearts and minds of the Americans in his letter to, to Hezekiel Nile, if I remember correctly, in 1819, where it's this, this is the revolution that we learned how to do politics. And, and that, I think, when you mentioned state and local level experience, I think that in many respects is just people learning what it's like to sit down at a table across from someone who disagrees with you. And to figure out how to, to get it done. And I think that emphasizes a key aspect of leadership, which is statesmanship, which, you know, thinking about Irving Babbitt and democracy and leadership, this idea of leaders is, are, are people who can communicate across differences, who can acknowledge those differences, can acknowledge that they exist, and then they can learn how to communicate across them. And I think that's a key element that we're missing today. And I wanted to ask you, when we talk about political leadership, and you mentioned that the kind we've had in the past um, the statesmen we've had in the past, 
um, or unlikely to see in the future. And in trying to get at why that is, you know, there's lots of different reasons, but I want to start in the in the bigger picture level, which is how does do you think that the way in which we currently think about politics in general makes it harder for us to either see the value of that kind of leadership or to acknowledge and recognize that it even exists? I mean, when things are dictated by macro level forces and you mentioned bottom up thinking, which I think is part of it, but also just in general. I mean, when we have polarization, when we have macro level forces, when we have all of these things, it kind of takes the initiative and the possibility out of that interaction, which is, in essence, the, the key that makes politics work. Does that make sense? Or Yeah, and I would pick up on the, the maybe we can drop this into the show notes. A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece called A Time for Statesmanship. So I still believe in the possibility and the importance of statesmanship. But to your point, it has gotten harder. And what, what's interesting, there, there was a, in this article, I riff on a essay written probably now close to 50 years ago by a very wise scholar named Herbert Storing. And he noted that the founders, uh, somewhat paradoxically, were on the one hand, master statesmen themselves. They recreated a polity that drew on the traditions, but also transformed those traditions to create something new and that has endured uh, now. We're approaching the 250th anniversary of the Declaration. Um, But he also pointed out that a lot of the elements of their constitutional system that they designed, of course, after the Declaration, were designed to mitigate or offset or reduce the need for statesmanship. And and, uh, at one point, Madison famously asked, who's going to adjust these clashing interests to pick up on your theme that we do politics when we can't agree and I'm going to resort to war? And he says, you know, enlightened statesmen, which was a little bit of a dig at, at the tradition going back to Aristotle, they are not always going to be at the helm. So we need a system that can kind of approximate the function of, of enlightened statesmen. And, uh, but what Storing notes is that the constitutional design that the founders set up, you know, kind of precluded, by, almost by stipulating the ends of government, uh, precluded a traditional role for a statesman, which is to instruct and guide people into what is the good life and how should we govern ourselves. And and that kind of educative dimension of statesmanship has been reined in by the constitutional design. I think there's a couple of other features which Storing talks about. One is, starting with Andrew Jackson, is a, is a pretty steady democratization of the polity so you, in terms of who's exercising the franchise, I think the good news now is that we have a very democratic franchise and really essentially all adults can vote, all adult citizens can vote. But corresponding with that more democratic polity comes what Storing referred to in an essay he first wrote in the 1970s to kind of a populist impulse that the people are right. And the idea that the leader or the statesman might shape and guide public opinion which is kind of the basic idea of statesmanship, is incompatible uh, with and, and illegitimate in the eyes of that kind of populist impulse. So that's one barrier, the need to for leaders, even if they're going in a particular direction, to claim that they're doing so because that's what the people, they are the voice of the people. I think another complication which Storing noted, which you know goes back to the founding also with of, uh, I think Alexander Hamilton was of this bent, certainly the the progressives who uh, kind of arose in response to the Jacksonians who were connected with the spoil system and the party system, the idea of, of 
removing politics from administration and having kind of technical decision making, um, which also obviates the need for statesmanship, which is really focused not on what does the analysis tell us, but you know, identifying how do we balance and uh, choose between competing objectives where rational analysis is only going to get us so far. So between the populism and the technocracy, which I think have now woven themselves into the, the polity, those are some reasonably large barriers to statesmanship. I think we can see some additional ones uh, emerging in a really a bifurcated media environment um, in polarization. So all to say that it has become harder to exercise statesmanship, but it probably is also even more important because I do think we need the highest caliber of leaders coming forward at this juncture. So to bring it back to where I started, I think part of what Lyceum Labs is trying to do is to bring new people that have the predilection and the capacity for leadership and help them plug themselves in at the earlier stages of the political pipeline, if you will. I want to ask you about your leading to govern project and your efforts to actually make this a reality. But as a kind of a preface to that, or as a, a lens on that work and a way into this, I want to kind of push you a little bit on how do we define good leadership? Uh, because I mean, there's different ways to think about it. There's the definition of leaders. People are good leaders. They're statesmen because they have virtue and they, they recognize something that is good and they're honorable, right? And then bad leaders just aren't. And I think that that raises a set of questions associated with like kind of, well, who decides that? Are good leaders honorable because they agree with us? Uh, are they not? That, you know, you kind of get into that. I mean, Adam, I mean, Jackson is not, you know, he he would call uh, John Quincy Adams as a dishonorable you know, leader, right? Precisely because of the inside dealings, uh, whether real or not, uh, that he had. He, you know, he calls Henry Clay the the, the Judas of the West. You know, he's a... But so he doesn't think that they're particularly honorable. Jackson's critics, uh, Henry Clay in particular, Daniel Webster, uh, John C. Calhoun, a motley crew to say the least, John Quincy Adams uh, would say that, that Jackson's not an honorable uh, leader. Um, so there, there's that question of how do we decide and can we decide prior to the political system, prior to debates uh, on that? And then the, the other side, I think, and this is a side where I generally come down, is that good leaders, statesmen, are leaders because of their one commitment to the system and to winning in that system. It sounds a little crass, but winning in the sense that uh, they know how to, to make it work. And by definition, I don't care who you are and how big your party is, by definition, that requires communicating across differences. That requires knowing about, say, the legislative terrain, knowing about how to navigate differences in our fabulously diverse nation of ours. And so they're leaders because of skill. We can think of Madison, right? Madison knew when to apply pressure. He knew when not to. He was able to do things that other people, quite frankly, weren't able to do. Hamilton was a leader in this sense as well. And I think when, the way I read Madison is when he talks about the problem of not having enlightened statesmen at the helm, I think the virtue of our system is that it was able to create a, that creates a structure that can can survive even people who are trying to do other things as long as they're trying to do it inside that system and it makes it harder for them to prevail. So, I mean, how do you, how do you see leadership? I mean, and obviously I'm, I see bad leaders that, that I would say they're very skillful and good, but I don't necessarily agree with their policy outcomes and what they're trying to do. But does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, so, so there's one thing you've raised here, which I just want to pull out. And then I want to talk through, 
you know, maybe a little bit of a framework we could use to think about what makes for leaders who, if they are not consistently statesmen themselves, uh, have the capacity to engage in statesmanship at, in, at particular junctures. But I think one of the things, and, and I'll go back to your distinction between how do we resolve our differences, politics or war, you know, one of the things that the U.S. military does in training up their warfighters and leaders is provide a lot of professional development and education and how to be an effective infantry officer or how to be, in a, you know, lead a tank battalion, that sort of thing. So there's all this the recognition that this is a craft, it's a profession, it takes people time to learn and to master and the things that, you know, as a second lieutenant, you might need to know um, are not the same things that as you become a, you know, kind of a lieutenant colonel leading a battalion, you would need to know. So there's this idea of progression. And I just mentioned that because I think there's something of an analog in politics. You know, there are obviously different levels of political ambition from, you know, coming on to your local school board or city council or county commission to running for state house, to running for attorney general or governor of your state, to running for Congress, to running for the presidency. So we can kind of look at these, you know, kind of the level of skill and experience that one has to bring to bear across as the domain and the scope of the leadership increases, you know, we don't really have mechanisms for training up and supporting and helping leaders learn the skills they'll need to learn at each of those stages. There's a lot of support at the campaign and how do I get elected level. There's much less at the level, how do I actually govern? And so with this leading to govern project that is a key thrust of the of Lyceum Labs uh, over the next you know year or two, a couple of partners are really focused on, you know, how do we help state legislators conduct effective oversight of the policy domains they're responsible? Who are the most effective lawmakers and and how do they go about their work? What are the lessons learned uh, based on from the most effective lawmakers? So this notion that uh, like any complex art, there are better and worse politicians and you can learn and come to master that complex set of skills. So I think a very good way to think about it. Now, in terms of the of what makes for a good politician, I think to to an extent that is revealed in politics. And I'll just pick up on something you said of, of kind of revealed within the current system or the system of politics. So I think I think one of the things that makes for good political leaders are people who are prepared to actually lead the people that they are representing or acting on behalf of with their reason, with their rhetoric. So we often think of politicians engaging with each other uh, as they do as, as part of this negotiation and hashing out differences, but they also lead the people who vote for them. And this comes back to the two-way uh, interplay that leaders, you know, kind of listen and, and learn, but also you know, reason with and inform and educate the people that they're leading. So I would see that as uh, certainly one thing we should look for in leaders. I think there is a, and this was a key theme of Lincoln's Lyceum address and really of his statesmanship of defending the political system, even as partisans want you to move in one direction or another and are much less concerned about the ongoing health of the system. So I think good leaders are, you know, in this respect, kind of institutionalist, 
and they come to defend uh, institutions, even as they push to push to reform them. In recent years, there's been, and I wish our friend Julia was here because this is something she's written, I think, quite insightfully about. We tend to think, you know, leaders need to respect norms and, you know, always stay within the bounds of their institutions. Uh, when in fact, uh, as she points out, some of our most dynamic leaders, certainly Lincoln, certainly Franklin Roosevelt, certainly Ronald Reagan, you know, often pushed norms and the stability. So especially for presidents and executives, there's kind of there can be a disruptive quality uh, to their leadership that pushes aside norms that are no longer helpful or useful. And what the point that Julia would make is that really what it depends on is what are the underlying values that they're making that doing that disruption in the name of? Is it reinforcing the values articulated uh, in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution? If so, then we can presume that that is more consistent with our political tradition. If it is undermining those very values, then in that case, the disruption they're bringing to bear is is a problem. I think a third quality too that makes for good political leadership is what I would call the readiness to represent the whole, uh, whether it be a, you know, kind of a city ward or a county or a state legislative district or a state or a congressional district or a state or that is that whatever your domain or ambit as a political leader, are you speaking on behalf of and do you have a vision for that entity as a whole. Now, to be really clear, that doesn't mean that you, you you need to have your point of view reflect the median voter within that district or that everyone's going to agree with you, only that you are, you know, kind of standing and leading on behalf of with a with a vision that is coherent applied to the full scope of that group of people versus you are intentionally only seeking to benefit a subset of them and are ignoring or prepared to ignore or not speak to uh, those that aren't on your side. So I think there's something about that need uh, for ethical leadership to be speaking to the whole, even if some aren't going to agree. There's a couple of other pieces here that we might look at. One is, to going back to your point and picking up on a theme earlier, of kind of relating where we've come from and where we're going at the prosaic level or the grandiose level, in terms of the American story, you know, where is that story a source of strength and we can draw on it? Where is that story something that calls us to a reckoning and we need to think about it differently or in invoke values to push it further? So I think there's something about situating leadership uh, in the American context in ways that uh, reflective patriots of a wide variety of stripes can say, okay, I kind of hear the story of the country they're telling. I mean, again, I may not agree with it, but I see there's an effort to kind of make that story the American story. And then finally, there's kind of a, I guess what I would describe, a kind of a, a homespun willingness to lean into the practicalities of politics. And, you know, politics is, is also about governing. So to dig into the details of policies, not on every policy in every instance, but so that you can put your stamp on the things that you want to make your mark on. That requires a familiarity with the institutions and levers of government. James, you've written very eloquently about Senate procedure. And, you know, if you're a senator and you're not on top of your game in terms of Senate procedure, you're frankly going to be a less effective leader 
than someone who is, even if your policy vision uh, might be you know, more compelling. And then I think in the same way, broadly speaking, with politics, that you cannot only be a policy wonk. Um, you know, you've got to be kind of see the correlation of political forces and what you're trying to marshal. I think Abraham Lincoln was a master of this. And at one point in the Civil War, when, um, you know, there was a lot of moralism uh, for understandable reasons about the the framing and the legitimacy of the war effort and and the, the contest with the, the Confederacy and the, and the slave power in the Confederacy. And, and I think people thought Lincoln was basically kind of a, a backwoods frontiersman politician. And he said, look, you know, at one point he said, you know, I hope to have God on my side in this, but, but I have to have Kentucky because he realized, you know, practically speaking, the um, uh, keeping a coalition together that would enable him as a statesman to realize the ambitious goals he had set for the country required needing together a coalition, which then required a certain moderation or a certain toleration of people and interests that other people in that coalition found intolerable. So that the, the kind of willingness to kind of roll up your sleeves and engage in the messiness uh, and the crooked timber dimensions of politics, I think, is the final thing. I'm, I'm, I could I could go on here, but those are the things. And, and not every leader is going to have all of those developed to the nth degree, but but over time, that's the package or the set of things that I think are really important for leaders to develop. Yeah, no, this is it's it's fascinating, and I think it's, it's very important. It's really hard, right? And on many levels, we're like, oh yeah, leadership it matters, but it's a. I think conceptually, it's hard for us to recognize, right? Riker, William Riker, would write about this uh, famous political scientist. Would write about winning in politics requires persuading others of your view and that it's correct. Or most of the time, it requires setting up the debate in such a way that they feel pressured to join you, even if they don't agree. And that lends itself to an emphasis on individuality and the importance and the role of skill and skilled leaders in setting up that debate in that way. And I think the emphasis on individuals really underscores this sense of possibility. But we have this tendency today to think of when, when you start talking about leadership, you immediately go to norms and you think about moderates and reasonable like Mitt Romney, who is a fabulous individual. Uh, I, I don't know him personally, but uh, he seems like somebody who's very honorable. Uh, he seems like the kind of person you would want to have in government. But then part of me looks at his career in the Senate. And this isn't to criticize Mitt Romney per se. But when he announces that he's not going to run again, people are like wringing their hands and saying, what are we going to do? And I'm scratching my head saying, well, what did he do in the Senate? Right. She's like, if we only have more Mitt Romneys, it would somehow be OK. And I'm like, well, if we have more Mitt Romneys, there's no evidence that they would do anything because he didn't do anything. It seems like the the I mean, that doesn't mean it wouldn't be true, but I don't know what we're, we're premising that on. And I think that gets at this this kind of notion of polarization. And in reality, when we talk about leaders and you mentioned the importance of leaders kind of going back to the people and the electorate, the dynamic element in our politics. And it changes. It always was to change. It's going to constantly change. And there's no one right way or wrong way to lead over time, per se. It's going to change as well. Um, but I think leaders are able to they're going to ha- they're going to find themselves in opposition to the status quo. If we think about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, FDR and Ronald Reagan, these are all people who are continually acknowledged to be, whether we like them or not, among the greatest, most successful presidents in American politics. And the reason why is that they recreated the political coalitions of the time. 
and they recreated what was possible and they framed the debate and set a new narrative for a generation or more in our politics. They were leaders in every sense of the term. And but they challenged the status quo. And when you challenge the status quo, certain kind of people challenge the status quo. Outliers challenge the status quo, not your reasonable, sensible moderates in the middle who have already presumably are in positions of power and they win. Your AOCs and your Jim Dements are going to challenge the status quo. And I think from what you're saying, I think a big problem today is that the people who are challenging the status quo, unlike in prior years, aren't doubling down necessarily on that system, you know, aren't saying, okay, I want to, I want to reform the system so I can increase my ability to participate in that system and try to win, right? Because without the system, AOC doesn't have a chance. Neither does a Jim DeMint or anybody in between. Ronald Reagan needs the presidency to be strong. He needs his party to look to Congress to, to try to do things. They're doubling down on that system and then they create a new status quo. And I think about also like this sense of like leaders we don't like. I was in the Senate when Harry Reid was the leader and he infuriated me both in terms of policies that he was pushing, but also in terms of the what he did to the institution. But I can honestly say, and I've been wrestling with this since I've left, that he is probably the most skilled Senate leader that I have ever witnessed or read about in Senate history. Nancy Pelosi was a phenomenal speaker. She was just incredible. Her skill level was incredible. And how do we get to the point where we can not only train these leaders, but it, assuming I'm right and I could be wrong, how do we help equip people with this new perspective on politics so that they can appreciate good leaders when they see them? You know, you think about Howard Metzenbaum and Jesse Helms, and they were like not necessarily in agreement on anything, but they both kind of defended their abilities to participate in politics in the Senate because without it, they didn't have a chance. There was That was where they would go to win. And how do we get our outliers to see that? And then how do we get more moderate-minded people and others to recognize that they're not coming to burn the system down, but that any effort to try to win in the system, is a, it strengthens that system? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I, I want to back up a little bit. I, I might take a slight issue with you on Mitt Romney, but I think ultimately... I was trying to provoke you. Yeah, so I think Mitt Romney would have been a phenomenal president. I think he was a very good governor. I think he was a little a fish out of water in the Senate. Um, and, and so I think there's this other dimension, which we've alluded to a little bit, with those qualities that I mentioned, you know, legislative work where you're trying to assemble a majority in a discordant and disparate body for your viewpoint probably taps into a different permutation of that skill set than executive leadership. And, you know, I think... In Mitt Romney's cases, I just actually received the new book, which I'm looking forward to reading. But it highlights, you know, I think it opens up uh, with this vignette of his, you know, kind of going it alone. And to my knowledge, it's the only time a sitting senator has voted against a member of his party for impeachment. And it, and it was a, a singular act, but it was singular because literally he was the only one who did that in a lawmaking body, in a legislature, the need to kind of ultimately summon a critical mass of people to your point of view to further your agenda is, is what's required. You know, it's interesting. There is this tradition in the, uh, you know, the American political psyche of holding up the lone dissenter, whether it's in culture like Jimmy Stewart and filibustering until he collapsed and Mr. Smith goes to Washington or when John Kennedy got to the Senate and wrote this book or wrote it with 
Theodore Sorensen, I don't know who exactly was the, held the pen on Profiles and Courage, we are always lifting up the, the dissenter, the person who stands alone, often because we see them as standing for a point of view that eventually triumphs. But in the legislative context, I think there is a there is a different skill set and set of requirements than in the executive context. But I would concur with you that the, you know, the, the there is a, a kind of a, a, a political genius that a, a Harry Reid or Nancy Pelosi has that I think, uh, you know, I'm on the center right. Uh, I recognize also, so I think Nancy Pelosi will go down. You know, if you look at the hand she was dealt, which which arguably was roughly as tough as the one that Kevin McCarthy was dealt in terms of the narrowness of the majority and this influx of a very uh, kind of highly opinionated left flank uh, that disagreed with the kind of part of the party on many issues and how she held that together over the Congresses she presided over. I think it's a remarkable achievement. And so, yeah, I think uh, we're in agreement on that point. That, and again, now I, I guess going back to what I was saying earlier of the kind of advance in the profession of politics, it's a uh, you know the being speaker or majority leader is kind of the apex of the legislative task. Uh, there are uh, members who are more or less effective as rank and file backbenchers. There are members who are more or less effective as uh, committee leaders or subcommittee leaders, you know. So, for example, I think one of the most effective uh, members of Congress and who I think exhibits many of these traits is someone people, most people hadn't heard of, which is who's Tom Cole, who's a representative from Oklahoma, a Republican member of the Appropriations Committee. He's someone who I think has really mastered the the politics of working in coalition with colleagues within his party, with fellow appropriators. Often there's a huge, as you know, gulf between party regulars and appropriators and with members of the opposing party. Uh, you know, I, I got to know him through a Democratic uh, administrator, uh, a deputy secretary who had worked closely with Tom Cole's committee and, you know, completely other party. But he, uh, I asked him, I said, who do you think is is the most effective uh, member of Congress who you disagree with without blinking an eye. He said, that's Tom Cole. And he took me to meet him and we talked. And so I think you've, you've tapped into something, you know, in sports, they say game recognizes game. But I think in this case, this administrator recognized here is a serious person who's mastered the tools at his disposal, who's thinking about the coalition he needs to assemble that to get done what he wants to get done. That may not agree with what we want to do in the administration, but I, respect the way that he's going about doing it and realize I need to be on top of my game to hold my own with him. So anyway, that, that, I don't know if that's helpful, but that was what sparked by your comment. No, it reminds me of the antebellum era. And, it, and I think it really puts this in context today because slavery and race is, is one of these key issues, one of these issues that we see as completely non-negotiable for good reason, right? Uh, obviously. And, but at the time we think about John Quincy Adams, being an ardent abolitionist, you know, committed to, to getting rid of slavery. And we see John C. Calhoun, who, among many things that he did, he did uh, some things rather, you know, that were rather horrendous. And, and one of them was to argue for the moral good of slavery. And yet John Quincy Adams' uh, request, and ultimately John C. Calhoun serves as a pallbearer in John Quincy Adams' in his funeral. We can think of uh, Daniel Webster and uh, John C. Calhoun, who battled on numerous occasions against one another and had different opinions on many, many things. 
And on Calhoun's deathbed, uh, Webster comes over and he says, come back to the Senate tomorrow. I'm going to give a speech and I'm going to attack you, basically. <laughs> and he's like, I really want you there. And Calhoun's like, I'm dying. And so Webster goes and he gives the speech and he's like, the gentleman from South Carolina is not here. And then Calhoun comes in and he's, you know, he's trying to say that he's like, you know, he's here, he's here. And finally, he he's like, the gentleman from South Carolina is here. He bangs his, you know, his cane on the ground and everybody looks and Webster turns around and he bows to him. And Calhoun bows back and then Webster goes on and continues attacking him in his speech. And then Calhoun dies a little bit later. So maybe it was one of the things that helped push him over the edge. But there was a respect there, a respect, even on these issues today that we can't even fathom that there could be a respect. I'm not saying that we should think that, you know, slavery is bad. It is just pure bad. We understand that. But I think that's an element that we're missing today. And I think it gets at, in many respects, how we understand politics more broadly, and not just in government, but also in society writ large. And so I know we have very little time left, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the art of association and, and the importance of these questions in a more of a sociological setting and kind of how they live their lives and how they go about things, even if they're not running for school board, even if they're not going to be in Congress? How can that help to form part of the solution to our current dysfunction? Yeah, and no, happy to talk to that. And I really see that as the basis for what either would be a healthy politics, which is going to be disputatious and we'll have a lot of conflict, but we can figure out a way to work through that or, you know, a, a disintegration. And it really goes back, the term of the art of association goes back to Alexis de Tocqueville, who, when he was visiting the United States in the 1830s, you know, a very different fledgling country there. And he was literally going out in the boonies on the frontier, including through my home state of Michigan, and then throughout the South. And, and he came back and he wrote up his reflections in Democracy in America. But one of the things he really observed and he thought was a remarkably distinctive aspect of American society was our penchant for coming together to solve problems in local settings, whether it was setting up a public library or founding an orphanage or banning the sale of drink on Sunday, you know, what have you, or sending missionaries off to foreign lands that that, that Americans kind of naturally had to collaborate. And he, he, he made a couple of observations. One, that, you know, in Europe, where either you had a very strong and established state or nobility, they that served to solve the collection act collective action problem. Whereas in the U.S., without either of those traditions and without a strong state, if people wanted to solve problems, they had to come together and, and form associations to to do it themselves. And so he offered that the art and science of association is really what he called the mother science in a society of equals like the United States. So really, what I what I do is reflect on how our civil associations today, we would call them nonprofits or voluntary groups. They don't have to be formally organized or chartered. It can be everything like an organization I admire, uh, which really honors and sharpens and paradoxically thereby diffuses the conflicts between us as, as braver angels. That's a group that is a national association really driven by uh, citizen volunteers to local religious and civic groups. My hometown of Mason, Michigan, you know, if you were to look at the civic infrastructure of that town, it includes the Volunteer Fire Department, uh, the County Fair, the Optimist Club, the Lions Club, several churches that ring the, the town square, and towns and neighborhoods all across America, when they are doing well, tend to have a robust 
set of organizations like this in which people come together to solve problems and thus to improve their communities. But also, and this is a key point in uh, linking to the prior discussion, and it was a point that Toko made, that it is actually when we're working in association that we come to rub elbows with people who see the world differently. We come to experience at uh, smaller stakes. What will it take for me to have my particular view of what our church or our optimist club or our Boy Scout troop should do? Okay, if people don't agree with me, how can I bring them along or how can I engage with them that enables our Scout troop or our church to move forward? And those are formative experiences that really they're kind of training grounds for citizenship in a diverse democracy. So part of the reason I keep up a pretty steady flow of blog posts on this topic is I think that is an underappreciated underpinning of our democracy. We tend to focus on democracy and see democracy as something that's about, you know, voting in national elections to determine who's going to control our politics and government. And that is certainly an aspect of our democracy, of, of democracy. Another aspect is what's happening in our communities and our localities and our states in which people are interesting, not because they're voting or not or who they're voting for, but because they're citizens that have a constellation of views and connections. And when in this case, democracy is almost more of a cultural attribute or a disposition uh, to honor you know, one's fellow citizens, even especially when you disagree with them. That's the thing I'm trying to pay more attention to in the art of association. Wonderful. Well, I don't want to take up more of your time, but this has been an outstanding conversation. I could keep going for a, a while now, not only because I'm a former Senate staffer and I can just talk forever. It's what they train us to do. But also, I think your insights are second to none. I think that you were so thoughtful about these questions and you really get us all thinking. So I'm going to put all of the stuff we discussed in the show notes. I encourage our listeners to check out the art of association. And also, I'm looking forward to seeing this leading to govern project and what it's able to do, because I think it's so right that this is a huge area in our politics that really cuts across all of the different ways in which it is dysfunctional. So really looking forward to that. And with that, I would just say that this has been another episode of Politics in Question, and thanks for, for joining us. Yep. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.